You're listening to episode 167 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. J. Mark Beach, Professor of Ministerial and Doctrinal Studies, begins a two-part series on predestination and issues that some objectors to the doctrine take with it, namely the justice of God and the love of God. Focusing today on justice, Dr. Beach asks and responds to the question, is it fair that God should elect some to eternal salvation, but pass over others to their eternal damnation? Here's Dr. Beach. Well, for this episode of the podcast and what follows, we want to talk about uh, God's divine decree and the doctrine of predestination, not so much to exposit those doctrines, but in light of them, to discuss a set of issues that typically emerge as uh, points of debate and discussion, whether you uh, work through Augustine's treatment of predestination or Calvin or any classic Reformed writer, you'll find that they themselves anticipate and seek to answer various questions and objections to that doctrine, those doctrines. And you can, if you analyze those objections, you can group them under two broad categories, that which deals with questions of freedom and necessity and that which deals with divine love and justice. And for these uh, episodes, we would like to take the latter of those, namely uh, issues surrounding divine love and justice in light of the fact that God is a God who elects and passes by, a God who in his sovereign wisdom has ordained all that shall come to pass. In fact, if we take up the words of the Westminster Confession in chapter 3, we find a definition, a confessional definition of God's eternal decree. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Already with that basic definition, you find that it's careful, that it has technical language. In fact, it, it speaks in tones in which uh, Many of us have lost a, a kind of fluency of language that God foreordains whatever comes to pass, and yet his creatures are still free. There's still such thing as such things as contingency of second causes. These are established, not taken away. That seems to go against the grain of how uh, divine decree and the doctrine of predestination is understood on a popular level. Well, given that, and so, again, I'm not here to expound and exposit that doctrine, but to look at debated points or questions that emerge in light of it. In the early 80s, when I was a young buck uh, <laughs> seminary student, there was a philosophy professor by the name of Thomas Talbot, 
and he sparked a heated debate when he wrote in a Reformed periodical saying, charging the Reformed doctrine of predestination with one count of blasphemy in the first degree. And what uh, Dr. Talbot actually wrote was this. He said, the Reformed doctrine of predestination, with or without its corollary, uh, the doctrine of reprobation, is a form of blasphemy in this sense. Those who accept the doctrine inevitably attribute satanic qualities to God. They inevitably confuse the Father in heaven, whose essence is perfect love, with the devil himself. Uh, This, as I said, sparked an emotional debate. And at the time, a very young scholar by the name of Piper... (laughs) <laughs> responded. Uh, in fact, uh, Piper uh, took up the mantle in that periodical to debate Talbot and to seek to defend the Reformed doctrine of the divine decree and predestination. Well, that kind of live issue, and you can hear similar things said today, uh, now some 50 years, well, 40 years later, I guess, uh, the same sort of thing. So when we actually get into this question, okay, God foreordains, God elects whom he will out of a fallen human mass of sinners, passes by others, those he saves, he saves, that, that is, those he elects, he saves by all the provisions again, according to his grace, to make this happen, principally, of course, centrally, in sending his son to die for our sins and so forth. Yeah, but what? Yeah, but. Yeah, but. This leaves many people unsettled. And so, whether you're looking at Augustine or a Calvin, the question emerges, is that fair? So, looking at the justice question, Is that fair? Why does God, in his sovereign power and grace, not choose to rescue all sinners from the bondage and corruption to which they've cast themselves? Why distinguish between sinners? They're all sinners. They're all guilty. They're all miserable. Why is God's love discriminatory? Why are are we to suppose some people are irredeemable. Why distinguish between people equally lost and culpable? Well, whether it's Augustine or Calvin and many others, you discover that answers to these questions, finally, yes, we must admit, are beyond human understanding. In other words, we're not going to get an ultimate answer, but there are levels of answers we can give. To talk about God's justice and to talk about his mercy isn't to make the one contend against the other. Augustine says it's the height of impertinence and arrogance to make these contentious, as if mercy uh, can't fulfill justice or it's at the expense of justice. 
Calvin viewed these matters somewhat similarly. He believed it was better to confess our ignorance than to accuse God of injustice. So we can't stretch our necks up into the chambers of God's divine counsel. We have to be content with what's revealed in his word. And even a modern writer like Burkhauer thinks that uh, this is a difficult question, and if you've ever read Burkhauer, he very much, in treating election, believes that we have to walk the way of faith and accept uh, the revealed word at its face value rather than try to cross-examine God. And so he uses this category of the way of faith to uh, rein us in, to uh, keep us humble, if you will, in what we're unable to answer. But that doesn't mean we can't uh, seek to uh, offer something more of an explanation than just throw up our hands. Even a popular writer like R.C. Sproul maintains that there's only four choices open to God in relationship to a fallen world. God can decide to provide no opportunity for anyone to be saved, God could provide an opportunity for everyone to be saved. God, as a third option, could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of all people. Or God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of some people. The fourth option. Well, only... uh, Pelagians or Arminians uh, consider the first two options as such. Uh, Calvinism finds itself then choosing between the option that God save everyone or that God save certainly, directly, uh, some people. And of course, as you know, as we all know, they Calvinism, the Reformed view, opts for Number four, he chooses to save some people. In his sovereign good pleasure, he chose not to save all, but some. Now, the question that emerges at this point is, does this not bring much comfort? Or, or excuse me, the, the question that emerges at this point is, great, God sovereignly saves some But how does that help the sinner in hell? He didn't save me. And if God really loved me, he would have coerced me to believe. He would have done what it took to save me. He would have had mercy on me. You know, it's great to argue for free will, but if my free will leaves me in hell for eternity, that's not a comforting thought violate my free will, overcome my tainted, broken free will, come to the rescue. Uh, It seems like something's wrong with God uh, if he's unable to save me, or in this case, perhaps even all. So why doesn't God create faith in all sinners' hearts? What's the deal? Well, here we come to the nub of this distributive justice question. If he has mercy on some, must he have mercy on all? 
what about that? Well, what does God's justice actually mean? One commonly hears comments like, we humans simply can't understand how God can be righteous if he chooses one and rejects another without taking into consideration the deeds of either. But nonetheless, he is righteous. He does elect unconditionally, and that's that. But what does God's justice then mean? We have to be careful that we don't start ascribing words to God like justice and then redefine them in a way that has no semblance with how we understand the word justice in our common everyday language. We don't want to become so equivocal in our language that, yeah, when we say God is just, whatever, whatever that means, it has no likening to what human justice is. Perhaps, though, some simple definitions can be of service here. Justice may be properly defined as the administering of deserved punishment or reward. So it's a principle applied in which a person is given his or her due. Grace, on the other hand, is God's freely given unmerited favor and love. Unmerited. J.I. Packer talks about the grace of God as his love freely shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit. Contrary. Indeed, in defiance of their demerit. So God is showing love to persons who deserve only severity, and there is no reason to expect anything but severity. Now, there you get to the grace side of things. As for Calvin and Augustine, they did not see inconsistency in affirming God's justice in the face of election and rejection or non-election. Since grace is a gift, and as a gift, it's under no obligation to anyone. God's under no obligation to save, under no obligation to come to the rescue. Well, is he unfair then? In other words, is justice, in this case, a matter of equality? In the classic doctrine of predestination, we see an evident inequality. God does not deal with everyone the same. This is manifest in ways beyond the particular question of election and non-election. Take God's common grace. Even common grace does not extend to all people and individuals to the same degree and depth and duration. The distribution of uh, common grace is, in fact, veritable and unequal. Or take Picture, picture different uh, circumstances in life. If someone's born in a very poor, impoverished community to parents who have no education, no Christian background, and the like, the likelihood, and, and under a very oppressive regime, the likelihood of them coming to the blessings of Christ or having a rich, fruitful life is very different than someone born into a covenant home in a, a nation like the United States and with parents who live stable, repenting, seeking to worship God lives. This, where you're born, to whom, under what circumstances, you don't find an equal distribution of blessing from the womb. 
Or consider this curious question. Who decides that a person should be himself? Yeah, you heard me right. Who decides that a person should be himself or herself? That is, who decides that an individual should have these particular parents and siblings and grandparents and grow up in this place and have these teachers or those friends shaped by these uh, particular conglomeration of life experiences? Certainly, we don't decide those things for ourselves. They happen to us. We just find ourselves in all kinds of situations that happen to us, and yet they shape us as people. Some people have what you might call a privileged life, an easy life. They're born gifted, smart, handsome, talented, charming. Other people are born with handicaps, difficulties, broken backgrounds. They're not rich in, in attractiveness or smarts or gifts, musicality, all kinds of things, athleticism, all kinds of things like that. Is God unfair in giving to one individual a happier set of circumstances versus another person. In other words, without even talking about predestination and eternal election and, and being passed over and damned for your sins, just life itself throws us all these portraits that the nature of distributive justice is something that's not distributed in, in, in the way we see things as, as the same or equal. But maybe we do better to talk about distributive grace. And this gets at the, our very existence as humans. Dis, distributive grace, because we are fallen sinners, undeserving. We don't really want justice from God. What we want is grace from God. Distributive grace is unequal. And we see this in that the gospel is sent to some people. It's right on the pages of the Bible. It's sent to some people with the accompanying power of the Spirit and withheld from other places. The disciples did not and could not go to all places to preach the gospel all at once. So why one child's born of wealth and health and honor and strength and good parents and godliness and kindness and nurturing love and the like, while others know poverty and shame and abuse at the hands of parents or family members. Yeah, we're in the area here of things that boggle the mind. So even common grace isn't altogether common, and we witness it every day. So must God then uh, distribute grace equally? Must his distribution of saving grace be equal? Well, the parable of the workers in the vineyards in Matthew 20, for example, makes this point. The owner of the vineyard has a right to be generous. Uh, so long as he gives the other hired help their due, the agreed-upon amount, he's not unfair and then suddenly giving what's undue. Thomas Aquinas talked about that, that there's, there's giving, that there's a kind of twofold type of giving. The one's a matter of justice where a person's paid what's due him or her, and there God may not show partiality. There's a proper sense of justice giving what's due. But there's another kind of giving, which is a branch of mere bounty or, or liberality, 
says Aquinas, by which something is bestowed that's not due. And such are the gifts of grace. Such is the gift of salvation. Such are even the gifts that we see, common grace gifts, that we see uh, distributed, not the same, but in a distinct and different manner. Now, the whole basis here is sinful creatures have forfeited rights and privileges before God. As W.G.T. Shedd tells us, it's, it's time to go to the shed. As I tell my students, time to go to the shed. Shed reminds us that the doctrine of predestination is not chargeable with partiality because this can only obtain when one party has a claim on the other. And that's precisely what has ceased to happen. Sinners are traitorous. They're treacherous. They have no claim. They've lost this privilege they're God's creatures, but now justice demands penalty, payment. And this is, in fact, this is the sort of justice we don't want from God. What we want from God is not justice. What we want from God is grace. And that's what he gives. And grace, by definition, is not something that is due. It's not owed, and therefore it's not something that comes in equal measure to all, beyond God having a good pleasure that's wholly righteous and good, we humbly submit to that answer that he's been good and gracious to me. Dr. Beach responded to the question of predestination and justice. Next week, he looks at the love of God in relation to this question. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. Mid-America serves Christ and his church by assisting in the formation and preparation of servants for the kingdom of God. And our primary purpose is to train men for the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ in confessional Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Learn more at midamerica.edu and see how we're training students by cultivating field work in the local church and mission field through an affordable and residential academic experience. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.